This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. Hi, this is Chris Saxman with Virginia Free. I'm the executive director, former member of the House of Delegates, who served with the, the gentleman uh, who will be talking about his books here in a minute. But uh, I want to talk to you about VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia, who brings you this podcast, the VIP podcast, excuse me, available to you on Spotify, Apple, and of course, YouTube. Please subscribe, like, and share. Joining us today, David Toscano, former delegate, member of the House of Delegates from Charlottesville, who is a published author twice over. David, how are you today? I'm doing great, Chris. And, you know, thanks for having me, me on. And I wanted to compliment you on your uh, Substack and publications. You know, I really, oh. really enjoy those. I especially enjoy the embedded videos, the Wayback Machine. And, you know, <laughs> I'm just waiting for you to put the Woodstock video in there so I can look to see if I was there or to see where I was. Uh, Did you go to Woodstock? Oh, yeah. My hair was shorter. My hair was shorter than it is now, but I was there so I can tell stories. Wow. This is, you, you, don't, you don't think of uh, short haired guys in the late 60s going to Woodstock. No, you know, I, I was just a you know, high school kid from upstate New York who oh. wanted to go to a rock festival. Who knew? And that became an iconic part of, of America's history and That's the right. counterculture. And the camera. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. Well, okay, let's before we jump into your books, then, because you went there, let's go there. What was it like to be in high school in Woodstock? It was wet. I mean, the dominant <laughs> right. opinion that I had of the whole experience was that it was wet. And my a friend of mine and I, we hitchhiked down. Those were the days, right? Those we hitchhiked down from Syracuse, New York. And um, we got there very early. In fact, we were there before the gates, before the fences went down. And we wow. were part of the crew that went in when the fences went down. Remember Arlo Guthrie's? This is a free, free concert, man. Yeah, it was a free concert. And we got to the fifth row. Okay. And then we had to, when it was so wet and I had no tent or anything, uh, uh, we stayed one day and we decided to walk out of there. It was a 10 mile walk because of all the cars and the traffic and you couldn't go anywhere. Wow. 10 mile walk out. Yeah. Wet, soaking wet. Yeah, I mean, just telling people I was there is much more significant than how I felt about it. <laughs> it's like when I tell people I went to the 1971 uh, All-Star Game, which is one of the greatest All-Star Games in history because it had like 25 Hall of Famers on the field at one time uh, in Detroit. And they're like, wow, what was it like? I said, I don't know. I was five. You know? <laughs> I, 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 how would I remember anything about that day whatsoever? But so... Uh so so did you see any acts did you, did you go like oh yeah yeah you know sly and the family stone richie Haven. i was there in the beginning so richie havens uh yes. and jefferson airplane crosby wow. stills and nash and the ones i didn't see i've just made up that i saw because you know you watch the movie <laughs> enough and you kind of think oh yeah you were there for that so but was there do you remember a song played by one of those artists like man that that guy or that team was on fire that day yeah Richie Haven's Freedom. It starts okay. out, starts the moving out, and it's a very moving song about, you know, what people were going through at the time. 
And so I, I remember that very, very distinctly. And wow. of course, the who, you know, won't get fooled again. So so the lyrics back then really resonated with you. Um, the who, did you see the who there? Were they, were they there that day, the first day? You know, I'm not even sure if they were there the first day, but I'm such a who okay. fan that I've, I've watched okay. the clip in the movie enough to think that I was watching them. And, uh, you know... The lines about the same same as the old boss. I mean, it, it's so typical of the time, you know. Yeah, that's a that's a that's powerful stuff. When uh, I, I like going back and breaking it because I growing up then I was more of an R and B Motown guy. I lived in Detroit, at the mouth side of Detroit at the time, and I was you know Jackson Five, Isaac Hayes, you know that those um, you know Earth Wind and Fire. Those were those were my jams. Um, but when I go back, cause, and I was I was not, I was not the Stones guy or the Who guy. Uh, Zeppelin I was like I just wasn't into him but when I go back now and I go to more Stones concerts than any concert I've ever been to I go back and I read the lyrics and I'm just blown away by the poetry by some artists back then Dylan especially you know um, is there is there a line politically that has stuck with you uh, throughout the years well two lines lyrics. the who meet the uh, new boss same as the old boss uh, right. and the other one of course you can't always get what you want, which is the Stones line. And it, it's that's politics right there. Right it's, there. It's in the book. In <laughs> fact, I think I might have an epigram of one of the chapters that has that line in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, between Woodstock and baseball, man, we could spend the whole time not talking about politics. Well, I mean, it's all going to come back to that eventually, uh, as most things do in these days, especially with, with folks like you and I who have this passion for politics. But the, the you can't always get what you want is is one of the lyrics that I constantly go back to. If I'm teaching a class or giving a talk, that's what I go to. And, but if, because the lyric continues, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. Exactly. And that is the, that is, that is the whole rub in politics. It's the art of the possible. People go, you should, you know, I always love, love it. I don't love it, but I, I always laugh about it when someone says, I'm a non-compromising progressive or conservative, whatever. Oh, so, oh, so you don't get anything done. <laughs> just to say you, you can't be you can't be non-compromising and suggest to the world you're going to get things done because the only thing you do in politics in legislating is compromise that's right you take someone else's opinion and make it part of the legislation to get done what you ultimately are trying to get done and you move the needle a little bit in your direction you declare victory and you go home people don't want that they want all or nothing it seems these days and this binary construct exactly and of course the only alternative to that is you have a supermajority, you do things and then you get uh, brushed back, pushed back, and then right. you have to change it again. Uh, right. And that's what we're sort of getting a little bit of now, you know, where the pendulum goes back and forth. And sort of the worry is that it goes swings too far back and forth. Right. And then you move towards authoritarianism, which is, I think, you know, something we got to be really mm -hmm. worried about. Yeah, both sides. yeah, but both sides. I mean, no question. And not just the United States, it's global isn't it? Um, you know, but let's, let's dive into that as we, as we talk about your books. Uh, and, and I'm really intrigued. Why did you si decide to write two books? What was the, what was the, what was the aha or the Genesis, you know, David, you should do this. Well, you know, moment. I spent 14 years at general assembly and every year I kept a notebook of things that were happening. Uh, oh. I spent, 12 years in city government. And when I started uh, my transition into retirement, I thought, 
well, I've got some things I'd like to say here. And so I started writing and it was all going to be about my life in public service and all about the policies, not just, you know, not just a personal vignette, but all about the policies. As I turned in a manuscript to the publisher, it was 1100 pages long and and I could have kept going. And they said, you're not going to publish a book at 1,100 pages. So <laughs> David, I, said, I love you. I would never pick that book up off the shelf. <laughs> that's right. Too damn big. <laughs> that's right. So I, I said, well, okay, let's break it into two. And so it became two books. One, okay. which is Fighting Political Gridlock, How the States Shape Our Lives and the Nation, which is all about okay. what states do and how people neglect them at their peril. And right. we're seeing a lot of that right now. But right. it takes you through everything from how states control how people vote, where where the lines are drawn for districts, uh, the rules for voting, and in that way have an influence on Congress through education policy, criminal justice, even energy policy. And so that's the states-oriented book. And the second book became more Virginia-centric and it has more to do with how Virginia changed during the 14 years I was there uh, from a state that was pretty reliably a Republican state mm-hmm. moving dramatically in, into the blue column. And now we're, it's not, we're not quite sure that, you know, the, right. and that's one of the reasons why I got the title bellwether because right. Virginia is kind of a bellwether for where the Absolutely. country is going. Um, and, um, and so that became the second book. And one got published in September of 21, and one got published just in the last uh, several months. Bellwether. That's great, because I, I was at the Barnes & Noble uh, several months ago. It's about four or five months ago. And was looking on the shelves, and I see David Toscano. I'm like, my David Toscano? Did he write a book? Nope. Okay. Well, go, David. Uh, yeah. let's, let's talk about Bellwether and Virginia, since we're a Virginia-specific uh, podcast, Virginia Free, uh, for, 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 whom I, for which I work. Uh, nonpartisan nonprofit pro business group tries to keep the ball moving down the field for uh, free enterprise and good government. Uh, th- there has been a lot of changeover in Virginia the last 20 years, and it's uh, the suburban dominated Virginia has moved and trended more blue. And do you think it's a function of Democrats winning voters or Republicans losing them? It's a combination, and you throw in the mix the diversification of right. of. Uh, Virginia, especially in the suburban areas and in the what we call the urban crescent that runs down from Fairfax down I-95 through Richmond across the Hampton Roads. I mean, you, you demographics is not destiny, but we nope. do know a few things about the demographics in Virginia. We know, for example, that, you know, in uh, 2000, uh, 70% of Virginian, Virginians were identified as white. By the year 2020, 59% were identified as white. You had a much larger Hispanic population, a much larger Asian population, which people don't think about. And you had over 50% of the people in Virginia uh, who were not born in the state, including 12% who actually were foreign born. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge demographic shift. You take Prince William, take Prince William, for example, because that's where Democrats made a lot of gains in the last Huge. six years. And in Prince William, uh, 65% of the people identified as white in 2000, 
38% identify as white in 2020. So you see the big demographic huge, shift. Huge, huge shift. And um, I, I was at a conference and someone was talking about the the demographic shift in, in Virginia and um, how, you know, uh, more Hispanics were moving in. I said, yes, but also Virginians are also moving out. And most of the, most of the migration isn't necessarily from, you know, uh, Latin American or Hispanic countries. It's also from Massachusetts and Maryland and New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania, <clears throat> people moving down for jobs and education and, you know, and getting a job after college, raising their kids here and their kids going to colleges here. Um, I'll never, ever forget. We had a group of parents over for my son's volleyball team because uh, we kept seeing them in the stands and going, I think they're our team. After a while, you kind of recognize the same faces. Whereas back home in Stanton, you knew everyone. You knew who, the, who they went to prom with, where they went to church, you know, where they eat, <laughs> where they eat on Sundays after church. You knew everybody. Here, we just see the same face. We said, we should invite them over to our house. And we did. And they all came over. It was very nice. All couples, all married, which is an interesting demographic, uh, college educated, successful, but they didn't know each other. And I said, Michelle, go get some name tags. And as soon as you put name tags on, they, their faces lit up. They, they could talk. They had a few pops. They were really embracing one another. But on the background, not embracing themselves that way. They were you know, having a good time. Not that way. Uh, but I had put on the background the Virginia Tech-Miami football game. And if you're from Virginia and you know Virginia Tech football, Miami is a big rivalry, right? It was, I think it was – it might have been a Thursday or a Saturday night. I can't remember which one. Anyway. And I, and I and you know I had a big screen TV up there. No one was watching the game, and it was a close game with a big comeback. No wow. one was watching the game, and it, and it dawned on me. I'm saying, hey, can I get y'all's attention? Because all the all the boys were out back, fire pitting that kind of stuff in, in the backyard. We were in the in the kitchen, open up kitchen goes into the, the living room where the TV was. No one migrated over to, to watch the game. I said, where are y'all from? And they looked at me. I'm like, no, no, no. Where are you from? From? I know you like live here, but where where did you come from? Because no one's paying attention to that football game, which means none of you are from Virginia. This is like two dozen people. And no one was born in Virginia. Not one of them. Yeah, it really is amazing. I look back farther. You know, 1960, it was less than 30% of the people in Virginia came from out of state. Yeah. And now it's over 50% were oh, yeah. born out of state, including, I think, five of the last six governors were born out of state. Over 50% of the legislature was born out of state. I mean, you you talk about old-time Virginia. Yeah, there you go. Me, old, Pittsburgh. Yeah, you know, old-time Virginia. I've been here, I've been here since 75, ex- though. You know. Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. No, uh, no, so but, it's but a really to different your point, state. though, because, because the, all the turnover, the transitions, the uh, demographic diversity is exploding, especially in the Asian population. Um, you know, there, there's just, it's, it's a, just a, I live in Short Pump now, the, 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 the ethnic diversity is just absolutely fantastic. Um, and it, it's just so enlivening to see different cultures and people getting along and, and understanding all that. But politically, it's very different. And as such, to your point about being Virginia, being a bellwether, because they don't look at things as, oh, I'm a Virginian, this is what Virginians do. You have to constantly go back and say, this is why we do things in Virginia and why it works so well, first off. Uh, I think that's really important. Under people go, why don't we have a, 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 a succeeding governor? Why can't they succeed themselves? And you probably have a different opinion than I do on that. But we also do think some certain things differently, or in the culture of Virginia that erodes over time, um, because we go, well, that doesn't make any sense. And eventually, it'll change. But the change that's coming to Virginia 
uh, has been stunning, but also a reflection of the suburbanization and the shifting uh, populations throughout the country. And that's why I think it's a bellwether. And, it, and, and Virginia is a much more nationalized political state now than it used to be. People right. used to orient more to Richmond. Now they orient more to DC. And so oh, yeah. when you ask the question, did Democrats gain votes or Republicans or Republicans lose votes or Democratic Democrats gain votes? I mean, it's a mix because during the the decade of two, the 2010s, especially after 2016, Trump was there in the White House and he was generating a lot of Democratic vote in in Virginia. I oh, mean, oh, really large vote. And when then he left and Biden came in, you had some of the reverse, especially in the rural mm -hmm. areas. And that's what helped yep. the turnout for Yunkin and helped him mm -hmm. win the election. There are other reasons why I think, including some things maybe people haven't thought about, but, that, uh, but now we're gonna see what happens next. Absolutely, the, um, the point you make there about you know, Trump's impact on the Virginia electorate, I mean, when you run on draining the swamp and people who work in the what he was alluding to is the swamp of Washington, D.C., live in, in, in northern Virginia, they're going to come out and vote against you, regardless of party. And a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, people who voted Democrat probably go in that direction because that's just where their uh, Virginia Democrats have very smartly aligned themselves with this with the with the northern Virginia, I would say moderate Democrat, Clintonian Democrat. And Republicans, frankly, haven't been going after their issues in a way that, that attracts their vote. And we've seen the erosion over time, especially in Prince William County as a, as a prime example, but also in Fairfax. I mean, we used to have, when, you, when I was there, when you were there, we had, a, we had several Republicans in Fairfax. And now it's, it's, you know, it's 65, Zero. 35 in some of those districts, Zero. But Zero. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, the changeover that has occurred there. But the intensification on the other side, the, you know, the, the ninth, the fighting ninth used to be worth fighting over. It's not even in play anymore for Democrats, so they're going to intensify their y'all going to intensify their, their turnout in the urban and inner suburban uh, voting precincts, and that that has changed and is a ref also reflection nationally. Um, and I think, uh, as I was uh, talking to you know a former a candidate now House Dem House delegates Democratic candidate in the suburbs just now before we got on the phone here, um, you know, that changing demographic is is really important to to understand and tap into. For, for Democrats, but the brand the Democrats built over the last 20 years has been moderate Democrat, focused on education and roads, you know, not going crazy and too far left too quickly um, and turning off voters. They've been delivering on the goods and, and basically being uh, nice, you know, nice goes a long way in this business. Is, is, is that an accurate portrayal? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is an accurate portrayal. I mean, there are a lot of things that go into why people win or lose elections. And I think the Republican Party over the last couple of decades has taken the cultural wars uh, too far. And I think uh, people have reacted to that, I, as particularly women uh, who have reacted to some of the uh, uh, some of the proposals about abortion and and um, and and schools and guns and but it does swing back and there's always the risk that Democrats will go get out in front of their skis and start talking about things that don't resonate. Uh, for example, this issue about uh, about crime and whether mm -hmm. Democrats have gone too far in terms of uh, criminal justice reform. 
issues about parental involvement in schools. I think that played a big role in Youngkin's win. And I think uh, mm. the Democrats need to make sure that people understand that, that that's not the way most Democrats think about having folks involved in their school divisions. Um, so it, it, it's really important for people to understand that the Virginia voter doesn't go too far out of the mainstream mm -hmm. uh, central political no. uh, viewpoint. And uh, if one side goes too far out, out there, they're not going to get uh, the support. Well, and that's what we've seen. Uh, with, I guess the, with the, the Virginia bellwether is so uh, um, tied to who's in the White House. We've seen, you know, uh, but for Terry McCall's victory in 2013 over Ken Cuccinelli and, and Robert Sarvis, um, had that been ranked choice voting, it might have been a different outcome. Um, you know, it had gone back to like the late 70s since there was uh, someone in the in the off White House and the executive mansion at the same time, because the, the electorate in Virginia reacts to the first term of the president in the White House and they tend to vote against it. Yeah. And that's been the, that's they call the Virginia curse. And McAuliffe was the one who broke the curse. And of course, uh, this time around, he, he didn't have the same same degree of luck. Now, there are lots of different reasons why that that uh, that campaign went south for him. Uh, you know what? You mentioned ranked choice voting. Here, here's a little theory for you that a lot of people don't discuss. There are a lot of reasons why Youngkin won the election. But my, my, one of my arguments is that one reason had to do with how he was selected to be the candidate, which Absolutely. was essentially through a ranked choice voting process that a lot right. of people thought was going to be very chaotic at the time. But what it did was eliminated what people perceived to be the most conservative candidate who might have won it in a plurality contest and become right. the nominee. And I think McAuliffe would have dispatched her pretty quickly. But Yunkin sort of rose up as the kind of majority majority consensus figure within the Republican Party as a result of the ranked choice. And I think that made the difference in the election. I, I think it was a huge difference in the election because the brand that Youngkin, and I agree with you on all those counts, uh, the brand he came out of that, that nominating method, uh, the unassembled convention, was a, a relatively nice guy business leader who didn't have a lot of attacks thrown at him by the other conservative who, who might be the other people who might be perceived as being more conservative amanda chase uh by the electorate uh, and pete snyder uh who were trying to position to the right but they didn't attack him because they didn't want to lose his voters and there's still a large part of the virginia electorate republican party who uh you know are of are of that bent and that to your point that's one of the reasons why trump did so well in the in the nominations uh in 2016 is he got to 28 30 percent and got the plurality and rolled up the states here in virginia the ranked choice application and and i and i had some of the the campaign consultants and, and workers tell me how frustrated they were that they couldn't attack glenn youngkin because of ranked choice voting they didn't want to alienate the voters I'm like well why is that a bad thing well because we want to win okay but your team ultimately wants to win in november too um, and that's just the internal dynamic that both parties have. Uh, I also think the Republicans got a month head start on Terry McAuliffe and the Democrats, who still had a massive primary of their own to fight over. And I think it showed some of the weakness in the Democratic Party when you had, you know, younger um, uh, black candidates running against Terry McAuliffe 
uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, leader of the, the Democratic Party in the state, having been a former governor, uh, raised a lot of money. But because they got an early start and had ranked choice voting, they were set up to, to drive up Glenn Youngkin's favorables early in the summer. Oh, yeah. And they had an incredibly sophisticated targeting operation uh, that drilled down pretty elaborately into all these precincts. It was very effective. Oh, very effective. Very effective. So what what's tell us about your book, Bellwether. Sure. Well, it, it, it I mean, starts in 2000. I mean, we talk about Bellwether, about Virginia. OK, but what's what's the point you're trying to drive home? The point uh, the point I'm trying to make is it's the dramatic changes in the state that uh you know weren't they weren't predetermined i.e the, the 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 demographics itself don't don't make it there are things that have happened along the way that changed right. it from red to blue so take a look right. at say the redistricting process when you and i came in you were you came in 2002 or four two two so when you came in 2002 you were just completed a, the redistricting and which right. the Republicans pretty much stacked a deck against Democrats. But the big right. one was in 2011 when yeah. the Republicans had control. And you had uh, in 2008 when Obama won uh, the electors out of Virginia, that was the first time in 50 years that a Democrat had won. Kane had won uh, for a governor. Uh, and um, then uh, you had the redistricting and a 50 50 state. I guess conceivably became in the House of Delegates, uh, what sixty six Republicans and thirty four Democrats, something like that. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so you you had uh, a massive majority uh, in the House of Delegates, even though you had a pretty equal split uh, in the voter turn uh, the the voter the votes across the state. You also had a pretty large split in the congressional delegation. I think at one point it was eight three Republicans, and over time. Mm -hmm. With the court cases, it turned the redistricting process upside down because the first court case overturned the congressional map and the Democrats then went to 7-4 in the congressional delegation. And then the second court case overturned the Republican redistricting of the House, which eventually led to the majority for the Democrats in 2019. Right. So to explain how those things went on, I, I tried to explain them in the book how these lawsuits were filed and what the theories were and okay. how it played with the Supreme Court. Um, and that played a role in what, what happened uh, in 2019. And they say the rest is history. Well, the rest is history, um, you know, but now we have these brand new districts, 2023. You know, the, the slate is completely clean. You know, we don't have these gerrymandered districts uh, ad nauseum. Um, you have, I think, very fair districts that uh, will be many more will be competitive. You have a lot of incumbents currently uh, jammed into districts together where they have to figure it out. Republicans have worked out their differences, I'm thinking all but two, where incumbents are, are, are slotted against each other. Democrats are going to have, I think, probably the more nasty primary fights with among incumbents anyway. Um, I think that's set up for that reality in the Senate. Got a lot. We're going to have a lot of new senators. Um, this is this this election in 2023, in my estimation, will be the most important General Assembly elections for the last 50 years and for the next 50 years because of the sea change that's going to occur and the turnover and that because so many new faces are going to take place, that amount of turnover is going to be extraordinary. But 
it's also going to be relative permanent. Well, yeah, I mean, you made really good points here and you've been doing it on your newsletter, which I encourage people to read. What's fascinating is how the Democrats can't seem to resolve their differences. So you have Kathy Tran running against Eileen Fillercorn. You've got three people running against each other in Richmond. The Republicans, maybe a part of it has to do with the way the maps are drawn, but the Republicans seem to figure it out. They're moving people around on the chessboard. And so they're not going to have this contested these contested primaries. Now, Chris, you know, you walk into the, the House of Delegates now and you don't recognize many people there, right? And same with me, uh, only like about one half of the House now has four years of experience or less. I know. <laughs> and I think there's like uh, 30% of the people there now I never served with. And I've only been out two years. So, oh, yeah. So you think of the sea change that's occurring. Oh, yeah. And you sort of worry about, again, uh, whether people are going to sort of break apart the tradition we have in Virginia uh, mm -hmm. and trying to work things out and get along. I mean, I think the big, big issues are, have to do with economic development, too, and business, because oh, yeah. traditionally there's been kind of a consensus about mm -hmm. the importance of a, of a good uh, business climate. But I think there are a number of people who don't necessarily view that in the same way as people mm -hmm. did a decade ago. Uh, my, one of my chapters in Bellwether has to do with economic development and how, how the Amazon deal was won and a lot of the nuances there. Um, right. And, you know, Terry McAuliffe was just about as strong a business proponent as you get. Oh, I mean, talk about a cheerleader. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I said that at Virginia Freeze event in, uh, in uh, September of last year, introducing him, I said, <laughs> you know, yeah. with the Yunkin folks there, this is one of the most pro-business governors Virginia's ever had. And, you know, some of the Youngkin campaign folks weren't really thrilled with what I said. I said, but it's the truth. And the members of Virginia Free are the ones who tell me that. And I reflect my members. Um, and, they, and a lot of, you know, of the members of Virginia Free say, look, and we'll have dinner or whatever. So, look, Terry McAuliffe was really good for us. <laughs> you know, he, he worked. He tried to develop the economy in Virginia and our industry in particular. And I, and I just did it to tell the Youngkin folks, this is not a lock. You're just not going to get the business community because you you showed up. Terry McAuliffe has deep relationships with a lot of these people. That that's right, and and you know, it's sort of interesting to see how this the scandal, so-called scandal involving the 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 ad uh, that's just been released with Yunkin in it that promotes mm. the welcomes people to Virginia. How that's turning into a partisan fight, and and already everybody's snarking at each other. The word corruption has been used, not not the greatest word to be used. You know, no, uh, you don't I don't that. know that there's examples of corruption here. I mean, I think there are legitimate questions to be answered, to be sure. Sure. And then and then the Republican counterpoint is some other snarky comment that really doesn't relate to anything. So. It's about time to put the snark behind us and try to figure out what the best way is to promote Virginia. Um, and hopefully cooler heads will prevail in this uh, in this dispute and we'll sort of get back on track. Put the snark behind us. I think we have a bumper sticker coming here. <laughs> Stop it, the snark. <laughs> yeah, it, it, either that or, you know, maybe you and I should have a, a, a joint podcast called Snark Patrol. <laughs> in which we find the worst stuff that's being generated out of both parties and put it up online to say, are you kidding me? 
just it's we, we'll call it Bravo Sierra. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure enough. But I well, also have they, you know, and the book also has a number of uh, things about personalities. I mean, okay, Harry McAuliffe was one of the most interesting person. He still is one of the most interesting personalities around. And I don't know if you knew this, but Terry McAuliffe grew up one mile from me uh, really? in Syracuse, New York. Uh, he went to Bishop Ludden High School, Catholic school. I went to the public school. Well, and the did, joke, oh, did you know each other? Well, that's the joke. The joke is that I measured him for his high school prom tuxedo because he got all his tuxedos at my father's former war <laughs> rental place, Toscano's. And so we've now come up with a whole sort of series of jokes about how I sized them up a long time ago and, uh, you know, funny. that sort of thing. It's kind of. No, wait, 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 wait a second. Do you actually remember sizing him? I, I, you know. Or was it like, I probably sized you? On the political trail, I always remember that I did. <laughs> this is a Woodstock moment part two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember Terry. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. And Bob McDonald, uh, I, Bob McDonald spent a lot of time with me talking about his uh, experiences. And, you know, he and I did not agree on, on a number of things. Uh, he was a very strong proponent of uh, economic growth and development in the Commonwealth. You know, right. Bob's for jobs, that sort of thing. Bob's for jobs. And, uh, right. you know, great, of course, great, I'm a great close friend of Creedee, so I was not enthused yeah. that he got elected. But, sure. you know, it was important to tell part of his story. And I tried to yeah. tell it in the book and how so many people mm. uh, came out to support him in his appeal before the Supreme Court. And so there's a, there are a lot of things about him. There are stories about Bill Howell and how he would uh, he would uh, buck his caucus to take a position on a really important issue related to redistricting. That was huge. That was that was, that was huge. I think one of the defining moments in Bill Howell's legacy, the ability to say at that moment. This is great for my party, but bad for the Commonwealth, and uh, it's it's non-germane. I mean, the, the fact of the matter was the, the ruling we're talking about was for a a, a bill that's coming over from the Senate uh, amendment to a House bill, um, and the Speaker said the the amendment is not germane, and it would have re, re, redrawn the entire Senate. Yeah. Oh. Oh, and redrawn the entire House too. Oh, that's so, right. I mean, that's right. Both. It was. It was. Um... It was a profiling courage that I discussed actually is in both books. And when I talk about civility, and I do talk a lot about civility and civil discourse and civic right. engagement when I do lectures around the place, I talk about this particular incident because it's the classic case of saying, okay, we're not going outside that guardrails. Right. These are the guardrails. This is what we've established. It served us well for a long, long time. We're oh, not yeah. gonna we're gonna stick within the rules. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of people out there after the Trump election that should have called Bill Howell because, you know, we cannot have people going outside the guardrails and outside the rules or we'll lose this country. Well, and, you know, if we come back to baseball and we should, you know, you can't move the strike zone during the pitch. You know, <laughs> you have to establish what is and what is not a strike in the game of baseball. You have to establish what is and what is not holding in the game of football. You just you have to establish what is and what is not offsides in soccer. You have to establish these things so that the rest of society knows how to behave. That's that's the essence of why we have these rules and these laws in the first place. It's yeah, so that need... everyone goes, well, I might not like it, but that's the law. Like getting off a plane yesterday, one of these yutzes comes from like 10, 20 rows back 
before everyone's off the plane and, and people are like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm getting off. And he's like, they're like, that's not how it works. There's no law <laughs> says you can't, but that's sort of how we govern ourselves. You, you just can't go rolling up here and block everyone from getting their bags and getting off the plane. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, I guess getting you could take it there. all the way back to, <laughs> all the way back to the founding of the country. I mean, the notion of a civic virtue and then people had a responsibility outside yeah. of, the, of the legal system to, try to help e each other out and also have uh, sound norms and rules for how we how we govern ourselves and there's a real risk we're going to be losing that um and you know we don't have a lot of the leaders who identify with those views are leaving the scene and right. so when you look at a new house of delegates and say you know a lot of these people didn't cut their teeth with folks who had been around for a while and they think they know everything there is to know about how you should govern and maybe they should talk to some folks who have some experience to get their perspective on things. Well, it's, and I think the Bill Howell example um, is important, but if they don't respect it and don't understand it, and it's not rewarded and thanked, they'll not see the upside from doing the right thing. They'll, they'll yeah. do what they can get away with, regardless of party. I mean, this is not a slap at either party. It's, yeah. it's a slap at both parties and, and, and people in both parties who, when they see the, when they see the ring, and please, dear Lord, go watch the Lord of Rings, Republicans and Democrats. You know, th th there is a reason why that story is so powerful. The ring of power is 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 destructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's destructive. Yeah. And well, I look forward to reading your book. I haven't read it yet. It's uh, that's on me. Um, I got to go. I got to get it. I'll order Amazon today. It's available on Amazon. Yes. It's available on Amazon and local bookstores all over the place. And uh, really, that means after Good distribution, you... how's the how's how's our sales? For your book you know they haven't told me yet these it's really interesting this publishing you getting paid they, they don't <laughs> tell you they don't tell you for a while eventually you'll get a two dollar 95 check uh check for royalties you know that but i, I didn't write it to make money <laughs> so after you read it you have to yeah you'll have to have me come on and then i can tell you about how i saw aaron judge at a home run in person uh this year which was a lot of okay. fun yeah. okay not Good. 62 but i think it was 58 well, you, so you saw you saw the major league record be broken by Aaron Judge. Well, I can claim that too. Well, you, you, but you saw him during the season in which he broke the that major league record. That is exactly right. I don't I don't count the other three. Yeah, they 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 have a different era and a different record. They they have the record for the steroid era. God yeah, you talk about the guardrails. There you go. See, go back to baseball and guardrails. Just do it the right way. Just That's play right. the, just play the game. Just play the game the right way, and everyone's gonna be a lot better off. David Toscano, thanks for joining us. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, my apology for not reading your book. It's just, uh, just haven't gotten to it yet. I'm sure it's a wonderful book. Bellwether, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and where else? Uh, local bookstores, lots of places. I know they have them in Richmond, and the New Dominion and bookstore in Charlottesville has it. So. Are, have, have any uh, political science departments in Virginia picked it up as a, as a textbook yet? Supplemental nope. text? The, but uh, Patrick Hope and David Ramazan, uh, uh, Ramadan, uh, Ra Ramadan, Ramadan. Yeah, David Ramadan, they're using it in their classes. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Great job. And thanks for staying involved and engaged in politics. You know, reason voices like yourself are a, a reason why you were a leader of your caucus. Um, you know, there's a difference between uh, being a representative and being a leader. And not every representative is a leader. They just, they're, and that's what the job is. You're, you're there, you're, you're elected to represent other people. But when you're there, people who step up and lead like yourself should be commended. Uh, for all that you did for the Commonwealth uh, and all we do 
as we well know, those who serve, we just hand the baton off to the next generation. And uh, we hope we uh, left it better than we found it. Great. Thanks for having me on. David, it was great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Go Wahoos.